The only pleasure left for you is Toby Haydock. And Toby Haydock is very far away. Fortunately, though, it's the internet, so it doesn't matter how far away I am, but it does matter how quick I am, because this interview uh, lasted quite a long time, so I'll just be brief and cut to the chase. Guest actor, three different doctors, absolutely fabulous, very talented man, good interviewee. Take it away. Um, Sometimes doing this foolhardy podcast that's taking up all of my time um, produces great results and I've just had lunch with one of my favourite actors of all time the poor fool's having lunch with me for the second time Doctor Who is just a, a, a tiny entry into an illustrious CV so I have to ask him um, who is he and why is he talking to me about Doctor Who well you asked me to come here and talk to you about Doctor Who that's why I enjoy your company and you're paying for the lunch it's Bernard Kay who first came to Doctor Who when the Daleks were invading Earth. So how, how did you get to um, first cross paths with Doctor Who? Well, that storyline was directed by Richard Martin. And he and I had met twice before, Nottingham, certainly in Repping, Nottingham, and I think Stratford-upon-Avon. I may have got the last bit wrong, but I think it was in, certainly in Rep somewhere, so we'd acted together, and when he became a director, he, he obviously looked for actors he'd worked with. And it wasn't the first time you'd crossed paths with William Hartnell? No, no it wasn't. Um, my very first film was Carry On Sergeant, in which I had one line... And uh, Bill, as we all know, was the sergeant. And it's too long a story really to go into, but I, I crossed his path during one take and he tried to get me fired from the film. I reacted quite sharply and rudely by presenting arms with my rifle and stumping my feet. And he stormed off, but Kenneth Connor who was in the film, came to my rescue, explained the situation, and um, we got on after that, okay. And then when we got to Doctor Who, he didn't remember the carry-on sergeant section. But it's interesting because we have, we have spoken over lunch, and uh, in spite of all of that, you rated him highly as an actor. I think he was a very sharp, unsentimental, accurate character actor, uh, one remembers The Way Ahead, for instance, when he played the kind of prototype sergeant. Um, I, th- I think what he was, in essence, was a superior character actor who never really came to terms with the fact that, on film anyway, he wasn't a star. And it was a pretty good good part you had in The Dalek Evasion of Earth. You're, you're the sort of main uh, guest star so how would you how would you got to that point on television as an actor to be to be getting roles as big and high profile as that what had been your break into it i never really had a break into television um 
my first television was in 1957 when really as a bread earner it had only just got into its stride life was much simpler in those days you got jobs basically through people you knew through having worked with them in, in mostly in rep because rep was your bread earner then and it just grew little by bit. I, uh, people used to ring me up after I'd done a particular... I can't remember any exact instances, unfortunately, but people would ring me up, a director, I mean, would ring me up at home and say, I saw you on television last night. How would you like to do this for me next week? And it was that quick. And if it happened, you were lucky, and if it didn't, you weren't. It did get to the point where... Very much to my surprise, I, I was in demand for television, never in leading parts. But, but, but a frustrated actor wrote to the stage complaining that I was getting too much work. And I have to say that gave me a real glow of satisfaction. I felt sorry for the poor but, you know, <laughs> I'd worked... I'd done seven years in theatre before I ever did a television. And acting is what I wanted to do. And I didn't care whether it was in film or theatre or television. I just wanted to do it. And for somebody to complain that I was getting too much work, I took as a compliment. Well, we'll talk about those early years later, because um, uh, they are very interesting. And I've read your, uh, your writings on those that are ex extraordinarily evocative. But um, just in case there are any fools out there who just want to listen to the Doctor Who bits... Um, you encountered the. It was the second time the Daleks had been on television. What, what were they? Were you aware that they were? This going to be this huge icon? Um, what, what were they like to work with? I mean, the Daleks are as famous as Doctor Who, and you've worked with them. Well, until you said this second, it was the second time the Daleks had appeared. I didn't know that. It was. It's, it's so difficult now to realise, you know, what was going on back in the sixties. It was a television programme. You did television if you were quite lucky as an actor who'd been in rep, in theatre. But we, we never had any views about the future. You, you were busy, like anybody else, getting money to earn, you know, to pay your mortgage, to keep your wife happy, whatever it was. And, of course, it was intriguing but then what you must remember now is that in those days we had a week's rehearsal for every half-hour programme. So by the time we'd rehearsed with the Daleks for a week, they were like people we'd invited into, you know, they were people we knew. And we had to act the surprise and the alarm and the fear because we knew that little Bloggins was peddling away in there to save his life and couldn't go down a flight of steps. It was, in a way, an elaborate joke but it was a joke that hit the public nerve and what became uh, really a programme for everyone started as a programme for kids. Scary, but not terrifying. And it, everything happened. Things happened, that's all. And Richard Martin used you a lot. Um, was, was he a good director? Richard, yes. yes. It, well, Richard, one of those directors um, whom I was very glad to work with because... He took the view, and Douglas Camfield I worked with on, on um, the Crusades as well, and other directors of that era, they took the view that if they cast you in a particular part, you were capable of playing that part. 
and the result was they spent most of their time on technical problems and they let the actors run with it and I think mostly it worked we did the part because we enjoyed doing it we learned by doing it we learned about cameras we learned about television scripts as opposed to theatre scripts and we had a ball actually we really did and I'm not being sentimental about this the thing was a pleasure to do which is more than I can say about a lot of television these days. Now, I think the guy on the stage might have had a point because it wasn't very long after the Dalek invasion of Earth that you come back to Doctor Who playing another good part. Well, um, indeed, uh, in, in the Crusades when I played Saladin. Um, but that was a different director, uh, Douglas Camfield. But he, he, in, in those days it was a much smaller world and a much simpler world. And Doug had probably seen me doing something three months earlier, maybe it was something that gave him reason to believe I could play Saladin, although, uh, looking back on it now, of course, why would a white actor play a coloured, if one's allowed to use that word, character? Um, it was a different world, is all I can say to that. I loved doing it, and it was even more uh, worthy of remembrance because at the same time I was playing Saladin I was playing the Bolshevik in Dr. Zhivago so I was commuting between Madrid and London so life for an actor who wanted to act was a ball so How did you get the part in Dr. Zhivago then? Was that a lengthy process to get, to get that role? No, no I'd done a play a couple of years earlier called Gentle Jack, written by Robert Bolt, who wrote the script for Dr. Zhivago. And they were out on the middle of this plain in north of Madrid, the Guadalajara Plateau, and David Lean said, we haven't cast the Bolshevik, which is a bit weary, I mean, <laughs> weird, really, um, excuse me, because there must have been 1,500 Bolsheviks in Dr. Zhivago. But nonetheless, there was this one part called the Bolshevik, and Robert Bolt said why not try Bernard Kay? I wrote it with him in mind. Not for me, but with me in mind. So there it was. I found myself out in Spain doing my first proper film, my first visit to Spain. Because the part I played in Gentle Jack was that of a communist butler. And uh, it, he just thought about that. So, you know, he didn't write it for me. But he had my part in Gentle Jack in mind. When so he, he was it. picturing you as he wrote it, sort of thing. That's right, yeah. yes. And so what are your memories? Because I mean, that's an iconic film. Um, do you think it's a... Do you like it as a film? I love it, with caveats. Um, the end of the film is totally impossible. Uh, because at, right at the end of the film, the Alec Guinness character is telling the Rita Tushingham character how Zhivago died and, and describes him on a tram car seeing Lara, Julie Christie, on the pavement, rushing off the tram car to find her and collapsing dead on the pavement. So nobody could actually know what he had seen or heard or thought <laughs> on that tram car. And how was, how was Lean to work with? Wonderful, to me. People warned me. They said, you know, he's going to pick on someone, you're the new boy. Um, I told him, which was a lie, that this was my first film. And he said, well, never mind, come and look. And he showed me through the camera how a multi-camera setup works. 
He told me why you couldn't use location sound, why you had to redo it in the studio. He explained to me what he wanted of the character. I did my first line after a snowstorm, which had lasted all night before I worked. He was up a crane with a camera, and my first line was, replacements. He shouted, cut. He ordered the crane camera down to the ground. He jumped off it. He was freezing cold because he only had a kind of shell suit on. He came over to the wagon where I was sitting with Julie Christie, and he looked up at me and he said, wonderful concentration. And then he went away, got back up on his camera, and started reshooting. And I didn't feel it necessary to tell him that I'd forgotten to put my contact lenses in. <laughs> well, um, you know, not David Lean, but certainly in the field that we're talking about, Douglas Camfield, hugely highly regarded by fans of Doctor Who and I think of, of archive television. Um, do, you, do you think he was a strong director, Camfield? Well, again, uh, like Richard Martin, um, he trusted me once having given me the part of Saladin to play it my way. Um, I, I don't ever remember uh, talking about it. I felt, I always play my parts according to what I see on the page, according to the script, the words. And if the director then wants to say to me, please, uh, I think maybe if you could nudge it that way, be a little more sentimental, be less sentimental, whatever, then I will do that. But I don't remember Doug ever giving me a note. And I don't remember how I got the idea of playing Saladin so locked in, so quiet a person. Uh, later on when I saw, for instance, a, a film called, um, oh, City, uh, the thing about Jerusalem, I've forgotten the title of the city now, but the man who played Saladin in that was an Arab, was a hard man, and to me, he outplayed me totally, but from a totally different direction. He was a warrior. I chose to play him as a statesman, tired of war, and Doug agreed with that. I have to City say, of Heaven, that was the film I'm talking about. I think your performance of Saladin is absolutely fantastic, and I, I love the weariness of it. Um, and you just have little throwaway bits. There's a bit where um, you say... I salute your chivalry, and you throw it away. You 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 do, you do salute your chivalry. You absolutely mean it, but you don't make a meal of it. You just go, yeah, because you've seen it all. He's done it all, and yet it's not a boring performance either. It's full of weight. Um, I think it's. I think. It's, have you seen it recently? Do you watch yourself? No, um, I do, but I haven't seen that recently. I, um, if that happened the way you described it, I can only say. It comes from my... I just read and reread the script. I mean, that's the source of all drama. Are the words you're given. And it, it, it seemed to me, I suppose, I can only think back on this, that, that Saladin would have taken it for granted that a man would be chivalrous in that situation. But nonetheless, it requires acknowledgement. So it doesn't need... Overstating, so I can only think that's why I underplayed it. Uh, well, it's, I love it. I love it. And um, 
and then you you have a little break from Doctor Who, and then you come back, you do the first three Doctors, so you come in with Patrick Troughton and the faceless ones at Gatwick Airport. Yeah, I, I, to me, I like Patrick as the character better than any of the other uh, Doctor Who's I've played with. Um, he seemed to me to give it more layers. You, you could actually, at some moment, you felt you could have picked him out of the back street of Bolton or somewhere and said, would you like to be a Time Lord? And at other moments you thought, oh, yes, here is this majestic person with a mind that can pierce through time and space. I just thought he, he made him more of a rounded human being than one facet, than anybody up till then. Uh, of course, later, you know, coming up to today, the whole thing has changed. The whole, um, what is permissible in a kind of hero, anti-hero, has widened, so you cannot possibly judge uh, Patrick or Bill Hartnell or John Pertwee with the people who are playing it today. It's it's a running theme though that actors that I talk to say Patrick Troughton is their favourite Doctor. There's something about his performance that actors like. I think it's because you liked Patrick and that came over. So when he did something, and again I have to stress that, you know, this was back in the 1960s, early 70s. Um, when Patrick did something, it was a human being doing it, as though he had been forced to be a Time Lord, instead of a Time Lord patronising human beings. I, I guess that's the basis of it. Yeah, it's a nice, nice. And you, um, one of your fellow cast members who was given the chance to... Uh, uh, be a permanent fixture with Doctor Who, but um, came and went with Inspector Croston was Pauline Collins uh, doing an early, uh, an early stint on Doctor Who. Was, was she destined for stardom even then? Paul, <laughs> I don't know. Um, she was a very down-to-earth. I think she still is, always was, even through that sentimental um, upstairs downstairs. She held a really good hard narrative path about her character you know <clears throat> and lucky John Alderson is all I can say really well she was the bright young thing but you'd also got Doctor Who has always seemed to attract some high profile actors and Colin Gordon uh, was in the Faceless Ones uh, and Donald Pickering and Victor Winding and there's lots of sort of good actors there um, Colin I, I, I found a very he was a gentleman actor uh, so was Donald Pickering. Um, so I, I don't always get on very well with what I call gentleman actors. In fact, I'll tell you, may, may I tell you a story completely Do. off Doctor Who? Do. I, I did uh, two of a series that Marius Goring played called The Expert. I think it was the second one I did where I played an old lag who had to show a new young con the ins and outs of prison life. And one of them was the slopping out procedure. And I, I think it was probably the first time on television that urine had actually been shown in a chamber pot or whatever it was we slopped out of. And this young actor was very toffee-nosed, posh, whatever you want to call it. And I have an instinctive lack of sympathy with all such actors. It's just my doing, it's not theirs. 
and uh, I went home that night and um, I said to Patsy, there's this young guy in this, um, it's a bit it's a bit kind of spiky really in this prison life, you know, and showing piss in the pot, uh, but he's never going to make anything of it, and she said, what's his name? And I said, oh, hold on, hold on. And I got hold of my script and I said, it's Edward Fox. <laughs> we, we met on the um, commentary of Colony in Space, which was the John Pertwee story, which I, was, I thought was very sweet that you, when we were watching it, you were surprised to see that you got top billing as the main guest star. I um, was. But of course you were. You're well, you, you say of course. It never struck me, I promise you. I'm not joking. Um, I, I think Maurice Perry... Who was in? Yeah, lovely actor. Colony of Space. Well, Morris is, is, is a lovely actor. He's a very limited actor, I think, by, by virtue of his own mental approach to life. <coughs> Excuse me. He has a, a very logical way of looking. In fact, at a dinner party we once had with uh, Morris and, and his wife Maggie and my wife Patsy, and um, he said to me, you know, Bernard, you're pedantic. And, and coming from him, I thought that was a real compliment. <laughs> uh, so, yes, he was a fine actor, but within, to me, quite strict limits. He was a mental actor more than an emotional or physical actor. I thought John Pertwee, uh, he was very affable, he was very friendly in a distant sort of way, and he was wonderful in his treatment of Katie Manning, who rose to death. We were playing in this chalk pit in Cornwall in the middle of winter and she had hardly anything on and she had a bad accident so she was held together with bits of wire and he gave her his great coat you know, to keep her warm which I thought was a great gesture. You actually started out writing and not acting um, and you, you, but you were, you were more um, factual, weren't you? You were a reporter. I never ever dreamed of being an actor. Uh, I always wanted to be a reporter, uh, but things happened while I was a reporter. The second day I was a reporter, I was put off the whole business. I, I, um, it was the day after VE Day, and I went out like a good little boy with my notebook and my soft pencil, because I wrote shorthand, which is more than most of them did. And Bolton VAD didn't really erupt into a great kind of glorification of the end of the war. It was quite quiet and muted, but there was a sailor on the town hall steps who was shouting at the top of his voice what he felt about the war and about the king and using obscenity, which was never in those days shouted aloud. And some soldiers were going to beat him up because of being anti-patriotic and the police took him away and got him to safety. Next morning I wrote a, a, a column about this for the Bolton Evening News which I worked on and the editor was a very cultivated man and he, he was an educated imaginative man from Cambridge University and he asked me to his office and he said, do you know Bernard? This is a family newspaper. We cannot have it be said that members of His Majesty's forces get drunk and swear. And 
that on my second day as a reporter made me start thinking again about the whole thing. Um, several other things happened. Uh, I went to an art exhibition in the town hall where Rubens was being displayed and I'd been reading, I don't know why, who the hell would want to read Samuel Butler, but I'd been reading him and he wrote somewhere that the flesh of Rubens is rich, voluptuous flesh. And that was cut. And I, I, later on, I was called to, to the house of a man whose son had just died. This was at the end of the war. He crashed in the English Channel after being an RAF pilot all during the war. He crashed in the English Channel and died. And I went up with our photographer and several other people had heard about this. Uh, telephone, I think, was another way then. And there were quite a few, maybe a dozen of us outside this man's house. And he came out and said, you must understand, I'm, I'm just distressed, I don't want to talk to you, please. And we all went away except for one member of one national newspaper who had been climbing in through the kitchen window and stealing a photograph of the man's son, which was then published. And that, I think, is what put the cappers on it. So when I went in the army, I was very ill, and I was given um, a sinecure as a sergeant uh, in the education corps, although I was actually a gunner, full gunner. And I began acting in the army and uh, in those days you were allowed when you left the army either to go back to your place of employment or to get a grant from your local um, council to choose different employment. So I got a grant to go to the Old Vic Theatre School and I was there for three years and then became an actor. Um, I, I mention this simply because it will be of interest to Doctor Who fans, but I'm not sure it was... Was it professional was it when you were in the army? You did Journey's End with John Abenary, which I is did. two of my favourite actors in the same play. I have to tell you, that was my very, very first ever play in the army with John Abenary. And I was playing Osborne, who was the oldest of the... He was probably had to be about 32 at the time at all, but I couldn't imagine being 32, so I whitened my hair with Blanco. <laughs> and John was playing Captain Hardy, who begins the play. He's retiring from the trenches just before all the action begins. But he was also playing Mason, who is the Batman, to the new commander. And as written, it's two, for two different actors, but we couldn't find any more actors. So John went off, playing Hardy, whipped off his moustache, pulled his trousers out of his boots, redid his hair, put an army captain on, uh, a, a captain's um, cap on, put on a captain's jacket, and got himself belted up, and came back on as Mason. I've got that the wrong way round. Yeah, he took the captain's got stuff the, off. I took all that stuff off. Excuse me. This is your fault, Toby, for giving me such a good lunch. Um, <laughs> he took off all the captain's stuff, which was quite good, actually, including the moustache. Whip, whip, off moustache, off cap, off tunic, leaving shirt and belt and back on, carrying a napkin over his arms. But this was written for two different actors, so I wrote myself a speech as Osborne, and it was awful. It was, it was something about, in those days, there was a different thunder from the guns. In those days, 
we were at home and they cheered it <laughs> and I think possibly that's the moment when I really became an actor <laughs> and, um, and so you wrote you, um, you, you have a thing about firsts because you were in the first episode of Zedcast I, I remember watching the first episode of Zedcast you were everywhere well I've got to tell you a story about Zedcast yeah. I was offered a permanent part in it not one of the six boys but one of the parts, it would either have been um, Dudley, oh, what's his name? Lovely, dark-haired, intense actor. Foster. Dudley Foster, it would either have been Dudley Foster, Leslie Sams, or one of those people who was kind of in and out three episodes, sure. and I turned it down. And, of course, this was 61. And as I turned it down, <laughs> there came about the so-called actor's strike. It wasn't a strike, actually. We've, I don't think there's ever been an actor's strike. What it was was an instruction from Equity not to sign new contracts with any ITV companies. I know Zedcars was BBC, but what it meant was suddenly half our earning power was cut off, and that's the moment I chose to turn down a permanent part in Zedcars. And why had you turned it down? Because you didn't want to be typecast? I thought it was rubbish. Oh. Um, it was written by Troy Kennedy Martin, the first episode, directed by John McGrath. And John asked me to be in it. And there were so many... I'm going totally from memory now. There were so many dots. Look, I'm telling you that what? What are you saying? I mean, that what? And nobody had ever... And I thought, it's awful. And I made the big, one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Not the biggest, but one of them. Because you also described uh, Colony in Space as rubbish, I recall, when we did the commentary. Yes. And it's interesting, having been drawn to your, you from your television performances, and now knowing you know, your uh, intuition and your uh, appreciation of writing, um, and also the fact that you worked on a lot of television, was the good writing on television, and what was the stuff you did on television that, was, that wasn't rubbish there for you? Oh, oh dear. Well, uh... The Cellar and the Almond Tree, I did with Celia Johnson. Um, and I played a part as a young man, which had been played by Leo McKern, uh, in, in the prequel, so to speak. But I, and that was, that was wonderful. But no, I did a lot. I did a play with Anne Todd, uh, called oh, Something About a Graveyard, with Eric Porter. And just by the way, if Eric Porter hadn't played Soames Forsyth, I was next on the list. Really? Yes. But he played it. Oh. Uh, yes. Um, no, it was, I've got to be honest about this. I am a very harsh critic about everything, including what I do. And I think, obviously, while television was finding its footing, people were experimenting a lot. It had to be. It was a, a new medium. Nobody had quite got the grasp of it. Was it cinema? Was it theatre? Was it somewhere in between? So you got a lot of rubbish. Not as much rubbish turned out as there is today, I have to say. I mean, is your heart in the theatre? Yes. Absolutely. And this may be partly because I don't work on film. Um, I do work on film. What I mean is what I do on film doesn't come across. Really? Yes, really. Uh, I knew this for certain when I saw Dr. Zhivago, when I saw the, the first night. What I had intended didn't come across. On television it does. 
but television and much less demanding media. Um, I've never, to my mind, done a successful performance on film. So why I'm struggling to understand why film is different to television because I suspect exactly. if, if you asked anybody, exactly. your, your television performances, I think one of the reasons they stand up to this day is because you've got a, a sort of naturalism licked, but that also you do that thing which I envy in an actor, where you say so much whilst seemingly not doing very much at all, and I would have thought that would translate to film extraordinarily well. well. I, I thought well, obviously I thought about this an awful lot. I must just repeat what I've said. To my mind, I have never succeeded in any film, any film performance I've ever done. You just asked me a question which leads to it, I think. The thing about film is you must know absolutely in your head what you're going to do before you walk in front of that camera. You've got to, that instant. There's no messing about. That clamour board goes in, you've got to do it. Television is different. You have some rehearsal. If you're a film star, you may get some rehearsal with the director, but mostly on film, you don't get any rehearsal. You have to be able to reproduce what the director wants on the spot, at that time, and do it. Okay, you allow for retakes, but unless you're a star, you're not going to feature much in those retakes. Quite often you'll get to the end of a day on film, and some star has been taking 17 takes, and the director will say to you, come on, now we've got to get this done, it's, it's 12 minutes to 6, we have to wrap at 6. And as a character actor, you have to do it. I do not have whatever it takes to make myself count in that kind of situation. It's been a matter of a lot of upset for me, I, I regret it. And I see people on film whom I know I could act off stage or television any day in the year, but on film they manage to do their job where I wouldn't. So therefore should I not, because I've seen it on the Internet Movie Database, and it's quite a recent film called Psychosis with Charisma Carpenter off of Buffy the <laughs> Vampires there. For Reg and Travis. I, and I've been, I've been tempted to buy it, but should I not then? Because you get the, you get, what you also get is the, the coveted and credit on the poster, you know, it's got the cast. I know, I know. And it was the second film I did for Reg, I know. Um, I'm sorry, Reg, don't waste your money. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I sh you know, I mean, Reg was the last boyfriend of Amy Whitehouse. He's got a very posh new girlfriend. I've forgotten who she is, so maybe I'm hanging myself for the rest of my career. But no, I, I, the first film I did was called... It was about a, a weird regiment. Um, forget it. I played a character loosely based on M. And the best thing in, in the Bond film, the best thing I can say about that is I got to drive a Jag Mark V. Right, that was the, the height of the, uh, the artistry. <laughs> I think so. Sorry, Reg. Well, I mean, we, we touched on stage, and I'm not afraid to go there, um, because uh, you've, you've done things like you did the Scottish play. Famously, you learnt, rehearsed, and performed it at 24 hours. 22. 20, how, why, how, what happened there? I've, told, I've said before in this interview, all I want to do... And I've just estranged somebody very dear to me by saying this. All I want to do is act. I have no ambition. I really haven't. I gave up any idea of becoming a, a film star within two minutes of acting. Um, this happened in my third job 
I was 24 years old. I, my first job was a year in the Old Vic Company as a walk-on, no speaking allowed, but I did understudy and I went on as the Archbishop of Canterbury and Henry V when Rupert Davis was there. Then I went to um, I'm sorry, it was my second job. I went to Nottingham to play Banquo. And uh, at the, I can't remember, I think it must have been the technical, I can't remember, technical rehearsal or first dress rehearsal. John Lindsay, who I'd never heard of before, and I've never heard of since, walked on stage and he said, Had I but died an hour before this chance, I had lived a blessed time fell off a rostrum and broke his ankle. Everybody vanished. The ambulance came, carted John Lindsay off. Everybody vanished down to the dressing rooms. John Harrison was sitting literally with his head in his hands in the audience. And I only had one thought. I want to play this part. It, it was no... I didn't consider it, and I walked up to him and I said, um, you're going to play it, aren't you? And he said, well, I'm going to have to. And I said, but you're wrong for it. Your voice is too light, you're too slight of build, you're too mental. But he'd been an actor, and I was totally brutal. And he said, I know! And I said, let me do it. And this, at 10.30, the guy broke his ankle. By 11.30, I was back in my digs. They'd phoned my landlady, there were two wonderful Scots sisters called Megs and Nam. They'd phoned them, they'd put piles of pennies on my mantel shelf to put in the gas meter. And they'd put two flasks of tea. And I just sat there all night and learned. I went in at ten in the morning. I began to falter in the early hours. And I thought, you know, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. You've got to be there, you know. Just got to do it. Ba-bang. There was no sentimentality about this. There was nothing about the music and saving the show. I wanted to do the bloody part, you know. So I went in. Uh, Patrick Crane was playing Macduff. So first of all, I did the fight. The big fight with him. Then we did a dress rehearsal come technical rehearsal in the morning. Then we did a dress rehearsal in the afternoon, and I went on at 7.30 in the evening. Oh. And I never knew I'd done it. I went home, I went to sleep. Uh, I wasn't very clever, because two days later, John Lindsay came back with his legging plaster, with a skirt specially made to cover it, and took over. I wasn't clever, you see. I should have said, I will do it if I can do it for the fortnight. But I didn't think about that. And J.C. Truin and other critics came on the Saturday. So they never saw me doing my Maccas. They saw me doing Banquo. And John Lindsay I never heard of again. And other Shakespeare's, and there's a, there's a nice symmetry, because when you did, uh, you worked at the RSC, uh, you were Glenn Dower in Henry IV, and your Henry IV was Julian Glover, yep. with whom you'd sparred on Doctor Who in the Crusades. Except, of course, that Glenn Dower never meets Henry IV. But you became him, because weren't you covering him as well? Were you his... I did cover him, yeah. yes. I never went on. He rode a motorbike, and I used to 
not pray, but wish that he'd just have a tiny accident. <laughs> Nothing much. Something that would put him off for a week, you know, but he didn't. We talked to gentlemen actors before. You are from very work, working class stock. Um, and you, but you, you were brought up by your grandparents in Bolton. Not really. I stayed with them for a little while, then I was sent to boarding school. And not a nice boarding school. If I'm allowed to say it, Christianity was beaten into you. Uh, it's now a very famous school, Cheatham's School of Music. In those days, it was Cheatham's Hospital, which was a, a Christian charity school. And you, well, you mentioned um, about the, you said, you know, you're not a company man, or you, you, you don't do the small talk and all that sort of thing. And is that because you had to become very... I've read your, the, the writings that you sent me, and some of the things that you described that were done to you and the way that you were treated um, are ex- Are you talking at school? At school. It was before the Second World War. Anything went... But you're not, you're not mad, you're not unpleasant, you're not a psychopath, but some of the things... How do you know? Went, well... When I was five and had measles, I also had a rotten tooth and an inflammation of my ear. In those days, there were no curtains on bedroom windows. And I don't know whether you've had measles, but I couldn't bear light. I was quarantined for 21 days, so I couldn't have my tooth treated. I couldn't have my ear treated. So for 21 days, at five years old, I was in the kind of pain I don't think many people have nowadays because of medication. What I did was go down. I couldn't stay in my bedroom. I couldn't send the light. So I went down to the sitting room. I had an old gate-leg table. And I opened it up, and it had a big velvet cloth. And I went under that cloth, and I stayed there. And my granny used to give me custard, egg custard, and sponge cakes and jam. Because that's, I couldn't get anything else done. So for three weeks, except when I went to bed at night time when there was no light on outside, I stayed under that velvet curtain. And quite a few things have happened to me um, in my life when I've been in danger or fear or something and that velvet curtain comes down like an insulation I thought of calling my my book insulation at one time Um, but I don't make friends I don't connect if I have to I've got two friends I mean you and I aren't friends we don't know each other well enough Um, we're acquaintances I have two friends it's my doing I never made friends at drama school, which is when you make friends, or in the army, which is when you make friends. I've never made friends from companies I've been in. So I don't know whether it's a direct connection from when I was five years old, but something insulates me from ordinary, friendly... I mean, if I weren't talking to you now, and I'd suddenly met you out in the street somewhere and we were just passing I wouldn't know what to say to you oh maybe oh hi hi Toby I hope you're okay I'm in a hurry you know um and that's it there have been three people in my life 
broken through that barrier. Two of whom are still alive, one was my wife. Apart from that, I don't think I have a friend. And it's not anybody else's fault. Uh, it's just happened. Some kind of defense mechanism, I guess. But I've not helped myself, you know, a lot of it's been my own choices. I make, because to be a friend, you have to have a lot of energy. You have to. To keep a friendship going, you have to have energy. You have to respond with energy, with kindness, with compassion. They take energy. Maurice Perry, actually, I've mentioned before, said to me one night, apart from calling me pedantic, which I thought was a compliment, we were talking, uh, uh, and he said, are you ambitious, Bernard? And I said, yeah, of course I am. He said, no, I'm sorry, you're not. You don't have the energy for it. And he was right. So all I want to do is act. I'd love it, you know, to have a bedfellow, but I want to act, and that's it. End of story. My thanks to Bernard. There's plenty more about his life and career to talk about, so there will be a part two that I'll keep in reserve and release at a later date. In the meantime, final word from the man himself. And so can we have uh, a charity then, because you haven't got paid for this, you've given me your time, I'm so grateful, you've uh, spoken very candidly. Um, I know the listeners will appreciate it, so I hope that they put their hands in their pockets and um, nominate a charity that, uh, well, they'll pay a charity that you are going to nominate. It's very difficult. I think, thinking about how, I think sight savers would deal solely with, with saving people's eyesight. Uh, I, I do, I, I do give them money, and uh, I think yes, that would be my choice. Thank you for for agreeing to do this, Bernard. Um, there will be Doctor Who fans listening to this, and what is what is your message to the Doctor Who fans in this the fiftieth year of Doctor Who? Keep watching. I think they might. Bernard Kay, thank you very much. Bernard's charity, as mentioned, is Sight Savers. You can make a donation at www.sightsavers.org. And on that website, there's a donation page. If you can, please do. Now then, coming soon, another guest actor. This one worked with two Doctor Whos, but he's not called Doctor Who, I hear you say. Well, on one of this gentleman's encounters, he was. Uh, but we'll find out the answer to that conundrum all the way from Hollywood, where this fellow resides and still works. But despite hefty CV, he's told me that he still has fond and vivid memories of his bows in time and space. That'll be in a future edition of this Toby Haydokes Who's Round. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who. The Seeds of War.
It's been hard. The last year especially. Rationing, riots. Delica's a no-go area. You shouldn't have risked it. <laughs> the military were going to be there. What could go wrong? The war was just a disturbance in the outer systems. We thought it'd be over in a few years. Why are you keeping the doctor locked up? He's not some common criminal, you know. What would you call a collaborator? Well, be nice knowing you! Ironically, I survived the last years of the war just to get blown up on my own charges! It's too late! The whole thing's coming down! Run, man, run! You're sure, Doctor? Because you know we're already there. Inside your mind. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.